John chapter 5. Would you go with me to the Gospel of John in chapter 5? John chapter 5. I want to read from verse 1 through verse 18. It's a passage we'll be coming back to. But I want you to see the whole of this portion of John chapter 5 uh, this morning. So you, you follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read from mine in the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5 of John's Gospel. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. And verse 5 says, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And verse 15 says that the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now I have noted here in our studies through these first four chapters, and I'll note it again as we start chapter 5, John's purpose in writing this gospel, is to show Jesus Christ as God in human flesh. And we've been seeing that in the first four chapters. We've also been seeing Christ's message, the message that he brings and gives to people. And we've been seeing the people's response to his message. And that's just what we're going to see in the text again here today. We see Jesus presented as God in human flesh. He he heals this man at the the pool of Bethesda. He also presents his message to this man. He also see 
we also see here the, the response of this man and others to Jesus. Now, now right away, as we enter chapter 5, we're introduced to an interesting scene. And Jesus arrives at the pool where there are five roofed colonnades. These are, these are five porches with coverings. And on them, lying all around, are what John calls in verse 3, a multitude of individuals. And these people were blind and lame and paralyzed. And what a sight that must have been. And probably not in a good way. What a sad sight that was as Jesus walked in the midst of these five roofed colonnades and, and all over, scattered all about, people who had come hoping for their chance at healing. What in the world are all these people doing at this pool? We see it in the text, and in answer to that question, we have something to deal with concerning verses 3 and 4. Because if you have uh, the English Standard Version in your hands, or the New American Standard Bible in your hands, or the New International Version in your hands, you may have noticed that verses 3b, the latter half of verse 3, and verse 4 are either missing or they're in brackets. And if it's not in the text, you're going to find it in the footnote. That's the way it is in the English Standard Version. Uh, Verse 3b and verse 4 are in the footnotes. Uh, let me go back to those for a moment because I want to note why why those might not be in your copy of the Scriptures or why they would be bracketed. Verses 3b and verse 4 says that these multitudes were, quote, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now in the footnote of those translations that omit these verses, you're going to find this, and or a statement something like this. Some manuscripts insert wholly or in part verses 3b and 4. Now, why why would some Bibles not have these verses while the, maybe if you have the King James Version in your hands, um, it does have them. Why would some Bibles not have these verses while the King James does? Well, what's happening here? is that there, uh, these verses aren't found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. We call this, uh, we might call this textual criticism. Uh, how these verses came to be likely began as some copyist made a note in the margin of, of the manuscript that he was copying uh, about these, uh, about the, the common belief in this day about this pool as when the water was stirred and, and it seemed to be that whoever was first in would come out healed and, Later in the process of copying these verses, the copyist's marginal note, maybe it made a note over in the margin, this marginal note gets inserted into the text. And that's probably what's going on here. And we can be pretty confident that, that uh, these verses don't belong here because of the thousands of Greek manuscripts or portions of manuscripts that help make up our Bible in the English language or make up the Greek text or the Hebrew text. Uh, our versions can be... We can understand them as being very reliable because of those thousands and thousands of, of manuscripts or portions of manuscripts that are used to compare, to prepare the, uh, the English or the Greek or the Hebrew translations for us. Um, the Bible is unlike any other book in, in the history of the world in that case because there are so many manuscripts available to help us translate what we have in our hands as copies of God's Word for us today. When all of these manuscripts that are 
that are brought together uh, and carefully compared, it, it becomes pretty obvious when something differs. And, and this is one of those cases where something is, is not right when compared to the oldest and most reliable and most faithful manuscripts. This is not found here. And so some of our modern translations either remove it or put it in brackets and say this is found in some, in some uh, texts, in some copies of manuscripts, but not in the oldest, not in the most reliable of manuscripts. So it's interesting to note that when we come to these few places too, think about it this way. You might be thinking, well, how can I trust, how can I trust my Bible if we're not sure what's supposed to be here and what's not? Well, um, I am very thankful for scholars who've gone before us and taken these thousands and thousands of manuscripts or portions and pieces of manuscripts and help bring together for us translations of God's Word that we can depend on and trust and rely upon. It's interesting to note that that when we come to these very few places in our newer translations that differ from the King James, like the one we see in chapter 5, that there's really never any historical or doctrinal issue that's called into question because of the differences. You need to understand that. Whenever there is a difference, and, and you'll see it here if you have the ESV, there's an asterisk in verse 3, and you won't find verse 4 unless you go look at the footnotes. If you have the New American Standard Bible, you'll find it in square brackets. And, and it's interesting that, that we can, we can understand that, you know, why, why wouldn't, why wouldn't this be here? Well, it's because, uh, they don't find it in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts, like the one we see here in chapter 5. There's really never any historical or doctrinal issue that's called into question because of, uh, of discrepancies like this. So, in the case of this passage before us in verses 3 and 4, um, it's an interesting thing because it helps us, and you can see how this might end up in the text because some copyist writes off in the margin, this is what was going on in this day, this was the, the common superstition or the common belief in this day, and somebody else comes along and, and goes, well, that belongs in there to help, you know, and adds it along with uh, verse uh, 5. In the case of the passage before us here in verses 3 and 4, it does help us understand this uh, commonly held uh, belief or commonly held superstition that there was some kind of healing properties in the waters when it was stirred. Um, the question we might have is, was there really an angel stirring the water? We don't know. <laughs> is it possible? Yes. Do we see anything like it anywhere else in Scripture? No. That kind of throws up a red flag for us. We don't find it anywhere else in Scripture like that. This is the only place we see something like this. So, yes, it's possible. And as some commentators note, this is also possible, that the stirring of the water was caused by some intermittent springs that also fed that pool. So these springs would, would come and go and stir the water. And when people saw that, the first one down would get in the water and, and um, they believed people were being healed there. Now, we understand why all these people are at the pool, right? Because the water is stirred and the first one in ahead of everyone else seems to come out healed. They're all waiting for their chance to be healed. And what a sorry sight it must have been. All these multitudes of invalids, blind and lame and paralyzed, lying around, waiting for the stirring of the waters, hoping that this would be their, well, I don't know, their lucky day. This would be their day, right? That they would get in the water first. And when you stop and think about it, it was really those who were least afflicted who would make it to the water first, right? I mean, think about it. If you're, if you're, if you only have a bad big toe, the likelihood is that you're going to beat the guy into the water who's paralyzed from the waist down. And that's what was happening here. You begin to understand how the excitement and superstition of this place got started. Now, obviously, the common belief that there were 
Some who'd been healed here before kept bringing people back day after day after day. I mean, the man we see in our text uh, with this disability for many, many years, keeping, coming back, and people like him back day after day, hoping to be the first into the water. And then along comes Jesus. Here's Jesus. And have you noticed... Have you stopped to think about how many times the Apostle John has shown us Jesus ministering to just one individual at a time? Many times here in these first few chapters of the Gospel of John, John is pointing us to the times when Jesus ministered to one person. And this is not the only time. This is another time. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, One man who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years when uh, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that, that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? So Jesus goes to this place where there are a great number of people. How many of them in need of help? All of them, right? And Jesus goes to this one individual. He chooses this one man to go to and speaks to this one individual. And I just wonder, you know, do you realize... You realize that Jesus still deals with individuals today? When I see him walking in the midst of all these people who, who needed help and he chooses one individual to deal with, it reminds me that Jesus still is concerned about my needs. He's still concerned about your needs. He still deals with us as individuals. You realize that God knows the deepest needs of your life? You realize that? That God knows whatever it is you're dealing with right now? He knows what, whatever it is that's going through your mind, your heart, you're dealing with, and whatever difficulty it is you face, that's not too hard for God to do, to know every individual in this room and to know about every situation going on in our lives and to be working right now to work in us what He intends to accomplish for His glory and our good. That's not too hard for God. He looks at each of us today. He knows just what we need. He deals with each of us in an individual way. And He does it mainly by His Word and through His Spirit. That's why it's so important for us to be students of the Word. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How precious it is that God chooses to deal with us individually and He does it by His Spirit and He does it by His Word. We dare not neglect His Word because that that Word is a sharp two-edged sword that pierces into our souls and does just what it needs to do. And So we need to yield to that and yield to the Holy Spirit's work in us and daily feed on the Word and trust that He'll help us in our time of need and encourage us and give us wisdom that we need for dealing with every situation that He knows about. Note how Jesus deals with this one man. You saw the question in verse 6. The question in verse 6 was, do you want to be healed? Does that seem like an interesting question? We wouldn't call it a dumb question, right? Jesus asked this man, do you want to be healed? It seems strange, doesn't it, that Jesus asked this man if he wanted to be healed. He is lying by the pool. He has been coming day after day, right? Um, of course he wants to be healed. Of course he wants to be healed. That's why he's been coming to the pool all these days. But, but if you think the question seems out of place, note the man's answer. He doesn't say yes. All he had to do was say, yes. You want to be healed? What would you say? 
Yes, I want to be healed. But he doesn't say that. Verse 7. It almost looks like more of a complaint than an answer. Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. So here's Jesus. And remember back in chapter 4 when we saw Jesus healing the official's son from a great distance. He was not in the room with the son who was ill, right? He said, go, go, your son will live. And the man on his way meets messengers who say, your son is well. And the man says, what time? And they tell him the time. He says, that's exactly when he spoke. He can heal from from a distance. So here's Jesus, the one we saw healing the official son from a great distance back in chapter 4. And this man who'd been an invalid for 38 years has Jesus asking him if he wants to be healed. And all he can do is... Kind of, you know, it's like all he can do is complain. All he can do is look at the answer to his problem and complain about his lack of ability to get into the pool quick enough. You ever stop and think that, that, that you and I are kind of like that at times? We, we have a problem. And though we have the problem, the answer to the problem staring us in the face, sometimes we look past the answer to the problem and we complain. How many times have we been in such desperate need of help and all we can do is look right at the answer to our trouble and complain? That doesn't stop Jesus, though, from meeting this man's need. And there's a clear demonstration of the grace of God at work here, and that happens in our lives, too. Sometimes we may look right at God's Word, and know that the answer is there. That the answer to our trouble is there. But we, we don't want to see anything of the Word. We just want to complain about our problem. And yet God is often gracious to us and intervenes in our lives and chooses to work in spite of our rejection of His answers. And God is gracious. We see His grace here. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Well, you see the divinity of Christ here? You see the divinity of Christ, the power of the words spoken by Jesus that He can command this man to get up and walk and the healing is in the command. Verse 9 says that at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. And it wasn't as if he had to kind of like test his legs. Let's see, I'm not sure. Somebody want to help me? Because I just, he got up immediately and walked. We're going to come back to this passage next week, but this morning I want, I want you to note that what's going on here really isn't about physical healing. You realize that? What's going on here really isn't about physical healing. Yes, there are numbers of people lying around under these roofed colonies waiting for the waters to be stirred. Yes, Jesus come, comes and, and speaks to this one man and heals him and he stands and he walks. But it's really not primarily about physical healing. And you say, well, if it's not about physical healing, then what's it about? We saw it when we read in verse 13 and 14. Well, look at verse 13 again. Now the man who had been healed, did not know who it was, for Jesus 
had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now, if this were about healing, why did Jesus slip away? Why did Jesus leave there? Why didn't He stay and wait for this man to be recognized as one who had been paralyzed for 38 years, who is now picking up and rolling up his mat and walking, and then a crowd would get stirred up and come and gather around Jesus so he could heal more. Why didn't Jesus stay? Why did he slip away? Certainly there would have been a great commotion of people also wanting to be healed. Why didn't Jesus stay and heal more people? Because Jesus wasn't here mainly to heal Physically, he wasn't there mainly to to heal those who were physically sick. He was here to heal the spiritually sick. He was here mainly to seek and to save the lost. He was here to bring spiritual life. And every person, think about it, every person Jesus healed physically, did they live For all eternity, or did they later die? (laughs) Each person he brought healing to later got old and died, right? What was it they all and we all need more than physical healing? Well, what we all need and what they all needed more than physical healing is spiritual healing, right? Now, we still pray for physical healing, don't we? This morning in our Sunday school hour, we prayed for many, many folks that we were all praying for, for for the last several weeks, many folks dealing with physical concerns. And we pray for physical healing. And we pray for God's hand of mercy in their lives and their physical needs. Right? And God does still heal. I believe God does still heal. But He doesn't heal everyone physically, does He? By and large, we're still going to have people who are crippled. And we're still going to have people who are blind. And we're still going to have people who are deaf. People who are lame. We're still going to have people who need physical healing in our midst. But what's most important is that what they really need is spiritual healing. Jesus points to it in verse 14. Jesus later goes looking for the man and gives him this warning. Look at verse 14 again. When he says, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And so you understand it's not about physical healing, it's about spiritual healing when he says, sin no more. You get the idea, don't you? Yes, now this man has been healed physically, but what he needed more than anything else was not to take, to leave that place hopping and skipping and jumping, taking great satisfaction in the, in the fact that now he was healed and he would worship his own body because now he was healed. He needed to realize because he was healed, he needed to repent of his sin and worship Jesus Christ. He needed to be drawn in faith to the one who could not only heal his body, but to the one who could save his soul. That's what he needed to realize as a result of his healing. He needed to realize that, that I need to put my faith and trust into the one who can save my soul. What he needed was to understand that his healing was to call him to faith and to Christ-likeness. And that's the point for us today. And by God's grace, we're healed spiritually when we repent of sin and trust in Christ. We've got to praise God that we're healed spiritually when we repent of sin. And trust in Jesus Christ. Because God is gracious 
He brings spiritual renewal. He brings new life. And then we're given the Holy Spirit. And that in the power of Christ, we might turn from sin to sin no more. There will be a day when as followers of Christ, we will sin no more. And yet today we have the power of Christ at work in us, helping us to stop sinning. We're not saved for our health. You know, sometimes people come to Christ thinking, if if I'll believe in Him, maybe He'll heal me. You know, we don't come to Christ for our health. We don't come to Christ for physical healing. We're not saved for our health. We're saved for holiness. You realize that? We're not saved for our own physical and earthly well-being. We're saved so that we might be more like Christ and live in a way that's Christ-honoring and God-glorifying and points others to the Lord Jesus Christ so that they too might experience spiritual healing, spiritual renewal and new life. We're saved that we might become Christ-like. You know, Jesus chose one to heal physically that day. But you know, Jesus went on to tell him that he should sin no more. How? In the power of the Spirit. That's how. By the power of the Spirit, all those who have new life in Christ are to sin no more. And that power of the Spirit is available to all who believe. You know, you who are the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have Christ as Lord and Savior, you realize you have His Spirit to help you conquer sin, to mortify, to kill sin in your life with the power of the Spirit, with the wisdom of the Word. And there were many there that day waiting for the moving of the waters. And that moving was only occasional, but God's grace is available to all today who will believe. There were some who were just waiting, hoping that they might be the first in. Do you realize that God's grace is available to all who will believe today? You may have some people you're thinking about, some people you share the Gospel with and they seem to reject it. God's grace is for them if they'll believe. If they will repent of sin and trust in Christ. God's grace is available to all who will believe at any time. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I'm just waiting until I'm a better person, until I start behaving. You know, if I can get some things fixed in my life, then I'll believe. No, no, that's not the right time. To believe. Now's the right time to believe. Now's the right time to repent and trust in Christ. Spurgeon spoke of those who waited by the pool when he says, These people attached great importance to the place. They stayed at the pool of Bethesda. If ever they got any good, they would get it there, they thought, right? Do you not know that Jesus can save your souls tomorrow morning in the tankard quite as well as next Sunday in the tabernacle? Do you not know that Jesus is just as much a Savior on a Saturday as on a Sunday? He's right. You know, if you've not responded to Jesus Christ in faith, if you've not responded to Him in repentance for your sin and and faith in Him for your salvation, forgiveness of sin, then you know that the right time to believe is not tomorrow, it's today, it's now. Even right where you sit. 
you know, you don't even need to wait until the end of the service for me to say, I'd love to pray with you, and I would. I'd even love for you to come forward while we're singing and say, Pastor, I want to get saved. I would love to see you do that. I would love to pray with you. But you don't even need to wait till then. That's not the right time. Now is the right time. You don't need to wait for the right time to believe in Jesus because the time is now. You receive Him now by repentance and faith. You, you do that now, right where you sit. You could have done it yesterday, right where you were. You could do it tomorrow morning, but don't, don't wait till then. I certainly would be happy to pray with you. But don't wait till then. If you've not trusted in Jesus Christ, you need to believe in Him now. Go to Him in prayer and repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. And and to those of you who have repented and believed in Christ, you do realize, don't you, that your salvation is, is more for your spiritual good than for your physical good, right? And some of us know that, right? We're saying, well, I've been a Christian for a long time and I am wasting away. <laughs> I am not physically healed. I'm getting worse and worse. Your salvation is for your spiritual good. And be grateful today that God is loving and gracious and compassionate and that He heals all spiritually who trust in Him. Be grateful. Be thankful to God today that yes, though your physical tent, as Paul puts it, you know, our bodies, these tents we live in, these things are falling apart. You know, if we lived in tents all the time, we'd have to replace them from time to time because they would wear out. That's why we build houses. And then that's why we paint them, because those things wear out too, right? And we keep up our houses because they protect us from the elements. But if we lived in tents, they'd fall apart. Well, our tents, our bodies are falling apart. But in spite of that, Jesus brings spiritual healing when you repent of sin and trust in Him. We keep getting older and older, don't we? And with age comes that failing physical health. But with each new day, you realize, don't you, if you're a follower of Christ, with each new day comes another opportunity that Jesus has given you to be more like Him. Another day as Christ's follower to be more and more Christ-like. Jesus told the man, See, you're well. Go, sin no more. He tells us the same. When He saves us from our sins, He says, go and sin no more. Yet we still struggle with sin, don't we? But that's why He also gave us the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. He had to go so the Comforter could come and indwell His people and challenge them and encourage them and convict them of sin. Pray that God will help you be a student of the Word who loves the Word and is challenged by the Word and grown by the Word so that every day you're becoming more and more Christ-like, killing sin in your life, being done with it so that others might see Christ in you. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning and we bow before You and I pray that the bowing of our heads would be just one indicator of the yieldedness of our hearts. God, I pray, help us to yield before You always and yield before Your Word. God, I pray, help us to go and sin no more. Lord, I pray that You would encourage us and strengthen us as 
As you have people in this room who, who love you and desire to live for you, help us to do that. Help us to honor and glorify your Son, Jesus Christ. And honor Him for His sacrifice for our sins. God, I pray if there's an individual or more than one individual this morning who has not put their faith in you, even now, still debating with you about whether or not they need to confess their sins, open their eyes, God, spiritually and help them to repent of sin and trust in you for their salvation, for their eternal salvation, that they might go and be done with sin. God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ as we as we celebrated the Lord's Supper together this morning, remembering Jesus Christ and remembering why He lived. Lord, we thank You. We, we want for You to get the honor and the glory for your, your Son's sacrifice on our behalf, but yet we know that we're the beneficiaries. We're the receivers of new life, and we thank You and we glorify You for that, Lord. I pray that You would help us to leave this place and to, to definitely live for You and to truly glorify You in the week ahead, so that others might see Christ living in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.